Welcome to the podcast for Windsor Road Baptist Church. Prepare your heart to receive God's message. I can relate to that particularly yesterday. Or when your appetite is off. But when you're starving, everything tastes good, including food that you don't normally like. And I can attest to that personally. When I'm fasting, uh, you know, haven't eaten for a couple of days or three days, celery, a vegetable I hate. If it's on a kitchen bench, it just looks so appetizing. But the proverb is only half true, of course. We know a good meal also needs to be a healthy meal. For many of us, we've had to change our eating habits over the years when we've discovered the foods that we really like were not healthy options. They were delicious. They were appetizing. It's our favorite meal, but we found that they were not healthy. And because they were not healthy, we had to change our eating habits. And we've done this over the years. And it was hard to do at first, if you remember, giving up certain foods. And then more difficult still, cultivating new uh, appetites. But we did it. And uh, we're better for it because of the changes we made. And our diets, our diets are something that we monitor closely all of the time. It's up for review every year, right? Uh, resolutions. This year, I'm going to stop eating this, and I'll start eating that, and so on and so forth. We make changes as and when necessary. Well, we need to adopt the same mindset when it comes to our spiritual diets, to our spiritual appetites. And our final sermon for the year I want us to consider cultivating a new, healthy spiritual appetite for 2022. Paul wrote to Timothy about cultivating a specific spiritual healthy appetite. He writes in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, For physical training is of some value, but godliness, this particular spiritual appetite called godliness has value for all things, holding promise for the present life and life to come. Paul was saying to Timothy, Tim, prioritize. By all means, prioritize your physical health. Go to gyms. Maybe back then they didn't have gyms, but they have some sort of uh, uh, thing they could do to keep themselves healthy. So, Prioritize that. It's important, but prioritize your spiritual health even more so. And in this context, he was saying, Timothy, prioritize godliness. Aim for godliness. Make it your call in life. Make it your spiritual appetite. In John chapter 6, verses 26 to 29, Jesus has something to say as well about the importance of cultivating a healthy spiritual appetite. He calls it working for food that endures the eternal life. Verse 26, John chapter 6, Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and ate. The, you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him the God, on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they ask him, What must we do? The works that God requires, Jesus answered, the work of God is this to believe in the one he has sent. 
Just a brief backdrop to Jesus' words. Just a day before, Jesus had performed an incredible, incredible miracle, feeding well over 5,000 people. Aside from the resurrection, this is the only story or miracle recorded in all of the four Gospels. Jesus performed the miracle as a sign pointing to himself as the bread of life. In verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. In verse 41, I am the bread that came down from heaven. In verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. And if, if, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. So that's why he performed the miracle, to point to himself through, through a physical object called bread, to point to himself as the bread of life that provides food that endures forever. Now, what does it mean? Do not work for food that spoils, but food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Well, one of the things it means is that Jesus is not only the provider of food that truly satisfies one's hunger. He is the very food himself that satisfies. Jesus is not in possession of the bread of life. He is the bread of life. All the other food you eat, all the other types of food you, food you eat will leave you hungry, will leave you frustrated, and will leave you empty. No individual, in other words, can fill the void in you except God himself. Now, the crowd missed Jesus' point completely through the feeding of the 5,000. The crowd just saw Jesus purely as someone who could give them endless food vouchers to all-you-can-eat food. That's how they viewed Jesus, someone who could meet all of their needs, someone who could make their dreams come true, someone who could uh, make them happy, and nothing more. He was just an ATM machine. If you have a need, go to Jesus. Punch in the right uh, four-digit and you'll get whatever it is that you need. $100 worth of happiness, $200 worth of happiness, perhaps 12 months later, $1,000 worth of happiness. He's there for you. In response, Jesus rebukes them for their self-centeredness and their materialistic notions of what the Messiah and his kingdom were all about. Now, all of us are guilty of that, aren't we? We view Jesus purely through materialistic eyes. Oh, Jesus, if I pray more, perhaps he will bless me more by increasing the size of my bank account. He will give me that job, that dream job. He will enable me to buy my dream car. And so Jesus, or God, becomes purely as our ATM machine. And as we come to the new year, one of the most common new year resolutions would have to be around the fulfillment of one's dreams, as I alluded to earlier, the pursuit of one's happiness. This is humanity's never-ending quest, and it's quite frightening to see uh, the lengths, the extreme lengths that people are willing to go to at times, to get that and to maintain it. But Jesus says that is food that spoils, food that satisfies temporarily. Why? That's because we're made in the image of God. And that means we're not just physical beings, we're spiritual beings. Only Jesus is in possession of the food groups that truly nurtures us. Nothing, nothing, nothing in this world, no one person will truly satisfy your deepest longings. This means 
You hear this? This means when we turn to someone, when we turn to something else for food that endures to eternal life, that only God can provide, that will only end in disaster and disappointment. It will only end in disaster and disappointment. This is why getting our desires come true could well be the worst thing that can happen to us. In Timothy Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods, Counterfeit Gods, he writes about a single woman that he and his wife, Kathy, once knew. She was desperate to be a mother. That was her dream. That was her dream. She got married, but for a while she was not able to bear children. Her dreams were up in flames. Nothing could be done about it. However, contrary to the expectation of her doctors, contrary to her own expectations, she was able to bear two healthy children despite her age. Voila! My dreams have finally come true. Thank you, God. But Keller said it didn't take long for her dreams to go pear-shaped. He writes, her overpowering drive to give her children a perfect life made it impossible for her to actually enjoy them. Her overprotectiveness, her fears, her anxieties, her need to control every detail of her children's lives made the family miserable. Her oldest daughter did poorly in schools and, dis and displayed serious signs of emotional problems. Her younger child was filled with anger. It appears to drive to ensure her children get what she didn't get when she was a kid will be the thing that ruins them. It wasn't that the woman loved the children too much, but that she, but that she rather loved God too little in relationship to them. Her children were simply crushed by the weight of her expectations. Jesus is the food that never spoils, but endures. But I want to drill down a little further. We know Jesus is called by many things. For instance, this morning, he's, he's known as the bread of life. He's also known as the great shepherd, the light of the world. But he's also referred to as the wisdom of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24, yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is God's power and God's wisdom. Christ is, is God's power and God's wisdom. In other, in other words, one of the main things it means to have an appetite for Jesus is to have an appetite for wisdom. To know and grow in Jesus is to know and grow in the wisdom of God, the inseparable. To pursue Jesus is to pursue God's wisdom. So, the question that I want to ask us this morning is this, how much value do you place on God's wisdom? Is that something you think about? As we go into the new year or before, have you thought about God's wisdom, the place of God's wisdom in your front lines, the place of God's wisdom in your marriage, the place of God's, place of God's wisdom or the importance of God's wisdom 
in raising up your children and the work that you do? Do you think God is absent from your front lines in the work that you do because he knows nothing about accounting or chemistry or engineering? Does his wisdom not apply? Does his wisdom only apply to things that are found within the four walls of the church? And then outside of the church, well, he has nothing to say. Is that why we don't pray for God's wisdom in our workplace? Oh, God, I need your wisdom to teach the children. I've been trained. I've got a degree in, in, in education. But, Lord, I don't know how to teach the children. I need your help. Is that a cry of your heart for God's wisdom? Lord, I'm, I, I have this computer problem. I, I need your wisdom. I don't know how to speak to my wife about this. I don't know how to speak to my, wis my, my husband about this. It's an area that I've been concerned about. Lord, I don't want to just go in there like a bull in a china shop. I need your wisdom. Are those examples of prayers you pray? Or God is completely absent in those scenarios. You just go in and do what has to be done because you know how it's to be done. Is God's wisdom something you consciously and desperately seek after? Consider the language used to describe the posture that we are to assume in relation to God's wisdom in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 9. Notice the intensity. Notice the, the words that are used. Get wisdom. Get understanding. Do not forget my words or turn away from them. Do not forsake wisdom, and she will protect you. Love her, and she will watch over you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. You want to know what wisdom is? You need wisdom. You know what wisdom, the beginning of wisdom is? Understand your lack of need for wisdom. Understand your absolute need for God's wisdom. Cherish her, and she will exalt you. Though it cost you all you have. Strong words, aren't they? Though it cost you everything you have, get wisdom. Acquire wisdom. Pursue Wisdom, get understanding, cherish her, and she will exalt you, embrace her, and she will honor you. She will give you a garland to grace your head and present you with a glorious crown. Wisdom here is personified as a she. So how hard did you pursue your wife and your husband? <laughs> That's what the writer of Proverbs is saying. Pursue wisdom like you pursued your wife like you pursued your husband. When I read this, I'm reminded of a bidder who was so desperate to see Leonardo's iconic painting, Mona Lisa, up close, free from the barriers and thick layer of bulletproof grass, glass that shielded from the 30,000 daily visitors. This is pre-pandemic figures. That he paid 98,000 US dollars for that privilege. He was so desperate to see it up close and personal. He paid nearly 100,000 U.S. dollars for that privilege. And Sue and I can understand why. Not the money that he paid for it. For a start, the, the painting is actually quite small, as you can see in the picture. It only measures 77, 77 centimeters by 53 centimeters. 
And even if he had front row seats, there's a barrier that is about 1.8 meters from the painting. We found this out personally when we visited the Louvre Museum in 2018. And add to this, when we were there that day, there were scores of people who crowded around the painting in front of us. That's what it looked like. And so the painting is right out where way uh, is sitting, and we're looking at it from here, and we're trying to take a picture, and in front of us were all these crowds of people. It was a, quite honestly, it was a very disappointing experience. <laughs> but once a year, once a year, Mona Lisa is taken down from its display to be examined by conservation ex experts. And this is the event that the bidder paid $98,000 to be at so he could see it up close and personal. Just imagine paying this amount of money to look at a portrait of a dead woman painted by a dead person. But before we get too critical of this bidder, the value we place on something is highly personal and subjective. While you might not be willing to pay for something that I treasure, it's there's a role reversal there. I might not be willing to pay for something that you value. Remember the saying about, the, that, remember the saying about one man's trash being another man's treasure. So I ask the question again, what value would you place on God's wisdom? How far are you willing to go to get God's wisdom? How much are you prepared to give up in exchange for God's wisdom? Now, while Mona Lisa may be considered the most expensive painting in the world, valued at more than $876 million, <laughs> taking into account inflation, it still pales, into uh, pales in comparison to the wisdom of God. Does it not? Jesus himself. Proverbs 8, verses 10 to 11 reads, Choose my instruction instead of silver, knowledge rather than choice gold, for wisdom is more precious than rubies, and nothing you desire can compare with her. Do we believe that? I know I don't, and I know you don't either. I'm not trying to be condemning. Just trying to be honest. Let me read that again. Choose my instruction. Choose my wisdom. It is more precious than rubies. It is more precious than choice gold. Do you pursue wisdom like that? Do you value wisdom? More than rubies? So, I want to end the sermon by looking briefly at what God's wisdom is. What foolishness is, in contrast to wisdom, which is the opposite of wisdom, and then how to get wisdom. Just very briefly, because they're all sermons in themselves. I just want to whet your appetite, I suppose. So, what is God's wisdom? The main word for wisdom in Proverbs is hokna. It includes being moral, but it is much, much more. It has very little to do with being intellectual or educated. One can be very knowledgeable, one can be very sophisticated, and completely miss 
God's wisdom, completely miss what God is saying and wants, which is wisdom. Consider Jesus' prayer in Matthew 11, verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned, from the intellectually, uh, from the intellectuals in, our, in, in, in society at the time, from the educated, from the learned, and reveal them to little children. So little children can access the wisdom of God. It has nothing to do with your level of education or your knowledge. You can't have knowledge without wisdom, but wisdom certainly necessarily includes knowledge, especially the knowledge and understanding of God's Word. So it's vital that we immerse ourselves in the Word of God and ask God to reveal Himself to us every time we pick up the Bible and read it. And not just read it to tick a box, but to say, God, reveal your mind. Teach me your wisdom. So what is God's wisdom? I think Keller's insight is very helpful. He notes, wisdom is making the right choice even when there are no clear moral laws telling you explicitly what to do. Some decisions require only knowledge, like the proper medicine to take, and some only compliance with the rules, like whether to commit adultery or not. But no Bible verse will tell you exactly whom to marry, which job to take, the danger of overconfidence, or the paralysis of overcaution. It is to know not only what to do, but also when to do it. In short, wisdom is not just about doing what's right, but doing it right. Wisdom is not just about doing what's right, it is about doing right, doing it right, i.e. doing it God's way. We can say wisdom is the godly understanding and the godly application of knowledge. That's not by Keller, that's by me. Wisdom is the godly understanding and the godly application of knowledge or truth, godly understanding and godly application of truth. Albert Einstein once said, any fool, any fool can know. The point is to understand. Charles Spurgeon expands this idea further. Wisdom is the right use of knowledge to know is not to be wise. Many men and women know a great deal and are all the greater fools for it. There is no fool so great a fool as a knowing fool. But to know how to use knowledge is to have wisdom. To know how to use knowledge is to have wisdom. I couldn't say it any better than Charles Spurgeon. Now, throughout the book of Proverbs, we're told the opposite of wisdom is foolishness. And there are many verses on it, but we will just look at one verse in chapter 1, verse 22. It reads, How long will you who are simple love your simple ways? How long will mockers delight in mockery and fools hate knowledge? The three types of fools listed in verse 22. The first one 
is pethy or pethy, translated as simple. And it means someone who's too easily influenced and led, driven by an inordinate desire and inordinate need for approval. That is why they're quickly impressed by the famous, the powerful, the successful, the popular, thus making their judgment and decisions very questionable. They will believe anything that the powerful, famous, successful will say. They're too lazy to think through things. Proverbs 14, verse 15 says, The simple believe anything, but the wise, the prudent, give thought to their steps. As such, they're most likely to fall for get-rich schemes. This gullibility, of course, has nothing to do with those who lack sophistication. One may lack sophistication and still be wise, just as one can be sophisticated, well-off, well-educated, and be a complete fool. The second fool spoken of in verse 22 is the Hebrew word lisim, translated as mocker. It means a person who makes cynicism and sneering a habitual response. They're constantly having to change their spectacles because they roll their eyes so much. Proverbs 21, 24 says, An arrogant man is inflated with pride, nothing but a snooty scoffer in love with his own opinion. That's from the Passion Translation. I love it. Nothing but a snooty scoffer and love with his own opinion. Mr. Mocker is his name. At the root of Mocker's character is arrogance. They think they're always right and true, and everyone else is stupid and inferior to them. They're easily dismissive of other people's opinions and hate submitting to anyone unless you fulfill all of their criteria. So they might say to you, uh, personally in front of, yeah, I, I, I will submit to you. But what they don't tell you is that they have a criteria that is a mile long. If you do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, which is impossible, they've set an impossible standard because they think they know it all. Mockers, though, appear to most eyes as worldly wise. They're actually fools in God's eyes. Thirdly, the third category of fools mentioned here in verse 22 is the obstinate from the Hebrew word kasil. This is the most common word used for fools in Proverbs. The primary trait of kasil is that they're opinionated, similar to the second one, but there is a differentiation. They're opinionated, they're wise in their own eyes, and unteachable. In verse 2, chapter 18, Proverbs, fools find no pleasure in understanding, but only delight in airing their own opinions. In verse 15, chapter 12, the way of fools seems right to them, but the wise listen to advice. There's an admiral, a Christian, who did a stint as the Homeland Security and Counterterrorism Advisor to the President. He wrestles with crises day in and day out. When asked what his MO was to life, what is one thing he valued, he said this, I reserve the right to get smarter later. I reserve the right to get smarter later. I won't always get it right, so I reserve the right to get smarter later. But 
I want to grow. Even though I'm in charge, I need to learn. I have so much more to learn. Now, how do we get wisdom, finally? In the book of James, chapter 1, verse 5, we're instructed that if we lack wisdom, go to God and ask him, and he will give it generously. Why would God give it generously? Because wisdom is vital, is absolutely vital for navigating life. However, in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10 says this, we're told that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the foundation of wisdom. If you want to start acquiring wisdom, you cannot but start from the place of the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord, in other words, is the prerequisite for wisdom. We can ask for wisdom all we like, but if we don't fear the Lord, we will not receive his wisdom. Now, the fear here is not refer referring to a debilitating, life-sapping, relationship, intimacy, soul-destroying fear, but a healthy, joyful, loving reference for and submission to God's authority over our lives as our Creator and Father. The fear of the Lord, to use a pastor's beautiful expression, is to live for the applause of nail-scarred hands. It means that what God says, what God thinks, what God feels, what God has a view about takes precedence over everyone and everything else. Who are you influenced by? How much of your thoughts are a regurgitation of the media you're watching or the books you're reading and the social media that you're following? How much of it is the wisdom of God that you're receiving from him and through his word? Mark Batterson, a New York Times best-selling author and lead pastor of a church in Washington, D.C., writes, you can please all of the people some of the time, some of the people all of the time, but you can't please all of the people all of the time. With all due respect, when I stand before the judgment seat of Christ someday, you won't be on it. And neither will I. The fear of people is a snare. If you live off compliments, you will eventually die by criticism. I like that. If you live off compliments, you will eventually die by criticism. This is a moment to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and that is what it means to fear the Lord. For the past two years, our church theme has been consecration, being set apart by God and for God. Before the year is out, I implore all of us again to re-consecrate our lives to God but this time by cultivating a desperate appetite for God's wisdom and to pledge our lives to live by God's wisdom, though it costs all you have. That's what it means to consecrate our minds and our whole lives to God. God, I, your thoughts, your ways, your feelings takes precedence over everyone else's. Nothing matters except your thoughts. You will always have the final say on anything I do and anything I say. It is you that I seek to please. So for the application this week, I'd like to suggest two things. Number one, read and meditate on James chapter 1, verse 5, and James chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. As you read these passages in God's wisdom, ask, 
God, what are you saying to me? What it is that you want to say to me through these two passages? And number two, ask God to reveal and teach you his wisdom. For your part, intentionally seek out and apply God's wisdom in every sphere of your life. Lord, what is your wisdom in this situation? What is your, what is your wisdom with regards to this decision that I'm about to make? I don't want to presume what it is that you want me to do. I don't want to presume that my parents are right, that my wife is right, that my husband is right, that my pastor is right. Ultimately, the person that I need to filter the information through is you, the fear of the Lord. God, give me your wisdom. I confess I don't really know how to handle this. I really don't know how to respond to this person. Give me your wisdom. Help me walk in it. Let me pray before Sue comes up and lead us in our final song. We do as the Scripture tells us to do. We do as you ask us to do, that if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask. And so we ask. So we ask. And Lord, thank you for the assurance that you will give wisdom to us abundantly you're eager to teach us wisdom more than we seek after. But, Lord, at the same time, you also give us a key to accessing your wisdom, to receiving your wisdom. That is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Father, I pray that you grant us hearts, that you shape our hearts, that you continue the work of sanctification that started when we we're brought to a saving grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, that, Lord, you'll continue to sanctify our hearts and our minds. Uh, Lord, you would teach us what it is to fear you. You would teach us what it is to live for the audience of nail-scarred hands. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you have been blessed by the message. Windsor Road Baptist Church is a growing intergenerational and international community of people committed to whole life discipleship. Please visit us at windsorroad.org.au to connect with us and to learn more about our church.